23 years in, we probably have to think about conceding that the 21st century is not turning out to be the golden epoch of peace, reason and enlightenment that many had eagerly anticipated. In many respects, indeed, it has been broadly similar to all the centuries which came before it, i.e. an era of trouble, tumult and conflict. The technology changes, humans, by and large, do not. 2023 began with some optimism that it might prove to be the second and final year of Russia's attempted conquest of Ukraine. Regrettably, a much-heralded counter-offensive by Ukraine's military proved less successful than Ukraine and its allies had hoped. Even more regrettably, Ukraine found itself struggling for attention, a commodity nearly as valuable as ammunition, as headlines were commandeered later in the year by a new war in the Middle East. That our world is a world of trouble was further demonstrated by the ignition of still further conflicts, such as the one in Sudan, which reflected badly first and foremost on the two rival generals principally responsible, but was also a dismal demonstration of a widespread perception that some wars and some lives are more important than others. In this special episode of The Foreign Desk, we'll reflect on the past 12 months with a panel of voices which will have become familiar to Monocle Radio listeners. What global resonances were there in the stories which caught our eye this year? Did we manage to dredge anything positive from an unceasing tide of dismal headlines? And who did our panel think were the year's most prominent villains and heroes? This is The Foreign Desk. Everyone on the ground was like, something's going to happen. But then when you spoke to the Volker Perts and other people who were kind of at the UN level, they talked about how shocked they were. I think this is about, you know, Western powers and so on. Not listening to people saying things need to be done differently, not thinking about genuine prevention. It is much easier to start a war than it is to end one. And that's the situation we're now in. In ideal world, you think, oh, if Putin goes, it all resolve. But this is not a done deal. Maybe someone worse than Putin will replace him. And then we are back to where we were almost two years ago. And then you look at the cost of the war in Ukraine. And we are in the West with an instant solution. You know, whatever happens, it should be instant. The difference between democracies and dictatorship, dictatorships always have time. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Joining me here in the studio are Latika Burke, a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and a lecturer of international relations at the University of Roehampton, and Yasmin Abdul-Majid, Sudanese-Australian writer, broadcaster and award-winning social advocate. Everybody, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Lovely to be here. I do feel like at least three of us should start by apologising to the other (laughs) one, that being Yossi, up the other end of the table, the only non-Australian here gathered. Well, I feel honoured to be in the company of three sons distinguished Australians. I'll remember it for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I hope listeners remember that, Yossi, because that may be the last thing you get to say for the next <laughs> half an hour. We are going to start with a story actually from Australia.
year, and it wasn't necessarily the year's most important, but it did have a certain amount of global resonance, and it does also seem daft not to discuss it when we have this plurality of Australians around the table. In October, our fellow citizens voted in a referendum on whether to enshrine in Australia's constitution an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Our fellow citizens declined to do so, and by the kind of margin that deep sixes an idea for a generation at least. Latika, paying close attention, as you do, to the politics of the old country, is there a simple way to explain why it was lost? Because for all that Australians are very reluctant in referendums historically, when this idea was first floated, it looked like money in the bank. This was going to win by miles, and it did not. It lost because it was a bad idea, essentially, and it was such a bad idea that nobody could explain very well how it would function and what it would do that would not encroach on other areas of policy. Essentially, if you had had a situation where Indigenous people were recognised in the Australian constitution, I think that would have been a slam dunk for Australians. Mm -hmm. 99% of Australians would have said, yes, absolutely, sign me up. But the problem with the voice to parliament was that it was asking Australians to approve an unelected body that would then advise the federal government on all matters that might pertain to Indigenous policy. And so naturally that provokes some questions. Well, where do you start and end with Indigenous policy? Is interest rate decision something that might affect an Indigenous Australian? And if so, well, what advice would they give and why should they have this special advice on broader macroeconomic issues, for example? Now, a lot of people would poo-poo this and say the yes side would say, look, you're conflating ideas and you're deliberately putting up these straw men to try and knock this whole issue down. But essentially, it did get to the point where no one could really explain the idea very well and certainly not well enough. And it was enough for the no campaign to say, if you don't know, vote no. And that proved a very persuasive campaign slogan in the end. Yasmin, the campaign itself was divisive, rancorous, unpleasant, generally horrible, as referendum campaigns in these happy times tend to be. Did at least strike you that it prompted any useful new thinking about Indigenous issues in Australia, like along the lines of, OK, if we're not going to do this thing, what else could we actually do? My sort of world, I think, is connected to, interestingly, both the yes vote and the what we might call the sovereign no vote or Indigenous Mm. people who voted no because they didn't necessarily agree with this particular mechanism. It is important to recall that Indigenous Australian opinion is not a monolith. There is no reason why it should be. Shockingly. What I've heard from sort of all of these different camps is that there is a sense that, yes, this felt like a kick in the teeth in some respects, but it also brought out a lot of support or at least it made the conversation about the importance of Indigenous sovereignty, Indigenous voice, whatever that kind of looked like, to the fore. And I think it galvanised some sense of, well, if it isn't going to be this, it needs to be something else. I think there is a challenge because the idea of the voice came from... There was a conference, which the name is escaping me. Gama. Yes. And the three specific recommendations from a number of Indigenous leaders about what they wanted from the Australian public. And The Voice was one of them. The conversation about how it was communicated, I think Latika is right in that, unfortunately, your average person on the street in Australia wasn't able to articulate what The Voice actually meant, but the concept of it was something that actually came out of Indigenous consultation. So I guess whether or not it has sort of created a new space or whether it's going to sort of have a longer term impact. I think part of the issue, unfortunately, is that, 
I mean, the state that I'm from, Queensland, overwhelmingly voted no. Mm -hmm. And I think, as you said in your introduction, it's not just we're back to where we were before. In some senses, politically, it takes us even further back because now you have to cover all the ground that the referendum sort of pushed people back. That being said, I think the people who are sort of pro-yes or sort of feel like they became galvanised around Indigenous issues, I think, are more more enthused or, or more committed to seeing some sort of change. But I don't know. I think maybe, Latika, you might have a different view. I disagree. I think the greatest tragedy to come from the voice referendum, the way it was put up and I think fairly carelessly handled by the Labor government, is that this is now set back trying to improve advantage for Indigenous Australians, I think, by generations. I don't think politicians will touch this again for a long, long time. And I think one of the other really unpleasant after effects is that before this referendum, I think there was a great deal of apathy amongst Australians towards Indigenous issues. Mm-hmm. I think most Australians, certainly if you ask them, would you like to close the gap? And that is the reference to life expectancy and health outcomes that differs for Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Everyone would say, yes, I would love to see the gap closed. But they know it's a very complex issue. And they also know that throwing billions of dollars towards it in the past has not really really helped. In fact, many measures on the gap have gone backwards over time. And so now I think what you have is this terrible, terrible situation where people were invited to basically give a free opinion on this issue. And they've said no and very vehemently no. And I think that that could actually lead to some more ugly strains of hostility that were previously just there as apathy. And I think it's a huge, huge tragedy. What we saw in this vote is actually something being extrapolated right across the West, and that is the so-called realignment, where we have very highly educated, wealthy, progressive voters voting along crude lines of of left or woke, to use that pejorative, (laughs) and you have a huge disconnect between what's going on in the regions, the suburbs and the country. And that is something that I know is frightening politicians in Australia because it's the first time that division's been laid really, really bare in the country. Yossi, on that point, I will bring you in because I think there is a universal aspect to this and it goes to what both Yasmin and Latika were just saying, that there is a universal disconnect and it is broadly between the city and the not city. And it does play into most of the other stories we will be talking about today. But do we have to resign ourselves to the fact that for the foreseeable future, literally everything is going to be at some level a hideous culture war bun fight? I listened to these very interesting comments about it and I think exactly the leitmotif of all this program is better the state of humanity, how we relate to one another, what causes us to be afraid of people that maybe don't look or don't speak our language, what brings us, you know, all this very, very, the bitterness, the fear of the other. And if you think, you know, before indigenous people are less than 4%. So what if there is an advisory board? And what if you actually look, how do we deal with people that we wronged in the past. Why we are so afraid to admit that we made a mistake? We even committed a crime. And we are afraid to say that because, yeah, if we'll start this, it will never end. This is the idea of the book on, on progressiveness. Instead, actually applying common sense to this. And the thing is, instead of it, it tears societies apart. And the way is actually to reverse this, the way this will is turning to completely the opposite in order to bring all the topics that we'll discuss today is exactly the repeat. Of course, in the case of Australia, it doesn't involve war and and conflict Mm -hmm. right now, but the principle for me is very similar about improving the state of humanity. 
Well, societies being torn apart by the lack of application of common sense is a theme to which we will be returning. The rest of this episode, depressingly but necessarily, will be substantially concerned with conflict. And while the conflicts we'll be discussing are all dreadful in themselves, they also furnished this year a depressing lesson in the relative values ascribed to them by international opinion. In April, war erupted in Sudan, a power struggle between rival military factions. At least 10,000 people have since been killed. That number is almost certainly an enormous underestimate and more than six million people have been displaced. Yasmin, obviously we have spoken to you about this a few times over the year, given your family connections to the place, but one of the things we will be discussing is why the rest of the world's attention, briefly drawn to the conflict as it was, moved on so quickly. But before we get to that, what is the latest you have been able to glean from your friends and family in Sudan about how bad this has got because to reiterate the point we're trying to make this is a huge conflict it is and it has completely transformed the landscape of sudan i think it is a generational conflict the country will not be rebuilt for generations most of khartoum or most of the inhabitants in khartoum the middle class who could leave have left either crossed the border to egypt left through saudi from port sudan or have been kind of internally displaced in the west with darfur the reports that we've been hearing from there is that essentially it is a a repeat of the genocide that we saw in 2003, 2004, 20 years ago. Unfortunately, I mean, the reports at the moment, you know, as of recording, is that the ceasefire talks have essentially been suspended indefinitely. The talks in Jeddah, in Saudi Arabia, UNITAMS, which is the United Nations transitional body that was looking at helping transition Sudan to a civilian government that has also been ended at request of the Sudanese armed forces. So what we're seeing is the pulling away almost completely of the international community from the conflict. We are seeing that in the West, in Darfur, the RSF, the militia, has essentially all but taken control, and so that is a base where they are sort of operating from. The Sudanese armed forces are still grappling with the militia in Khartoum. A lot of major infrastructure, bridges, you know, major power supplies and so on have been destroyed. And so, I mean, it's honestly just heartbreaking. It is the decimation of the infrastructure of an entire nation. I think it's difficult to understate the level of destruction and also the impact that it's having on the psyche of the people because this comes off the back of the 2018-19 revolution where there was this real sense that things are going to be different. The dictatorship of 30 years had been overthrown. There was this real sense that we would be able to get a civilian government. But now it seems that the people are just caught between two generals and their powers and also the regional interests are invested in maintaining that struggle. There is actually, and this is the truth of the matter, there is no incentive for either of these generals, either of these groups, to stop the war. And unfortunately, it's now curdling into an ethnic conflict. The kind of ethnic tensions that we saw in Darfur in 2003, the Arab and non-Arab tribal conflicts, they're now underscoring the conflict, and that's going to become much, much more difficult to untangle. Yossi, we will be getting later in the show to the current conflict in Israel 
where you're originally from. And it just strikes me that that operates at the opposite end of the spectrum of attention because massive attention is paid to any conflict or any situation involving Israel, even at the best of times. And as we will be discussing later in the show, these have been far from the best of times lately. But is there a simple reason to explain why the world should be massively invested in that particular conflict in a way that it is not invested in the conflict that Yasmin was just describing? First of all, Darfur relieves a nightmare. It was the same in 20 years ago, and it was a genocide. At the heart of it is the failure of the collective security system that was established post-1945, because it was supposed to exactly deal with this issue and bring them to a quick resolution. Instead of that, we became addicted to conflict management instead of prevention, conflict resolution, and peace building. So all with that... We think it's came to an end because it's managed and we don't go back to the root causes of the conflict and it flares up again and again because the basic tenets of this conflict never been dealt with. So in this sense, there is commonality. The other thing is the attention span. So one day we have Ukraine and all the attention is with Ukraine and then come Israel, Gaza, Hamas, and then the attention span is there and they almost forget that there is still war in Ukraine and therefore is now on the margin of it. But actually what the United Nations should have provided is the ability to deal with multiple of conflicts at the same time and deal with that or in its peacekeeping or peace enforcement. And again, going back, why does it happen? What are the root causes of that? The fact that someone such as Bashir would never brought to the Hague and there was no transitional justice, no final justice, it's actually empowers exactly the same elements that will restart a war such as Darfur. And then you find, for instance, natural resources as gold. So this will actually encourage because it makes the resources available to buy weapons. And then it's happening again and again and again. And I think this is a particularly key point with respect to Sudan, because when the revolution happened in 2018-19, there was this opportunity for something to be done different. The war that we are seeing now hadn't yet started. And then when the coup happened in 2021, so essentially Burhan and Hemeti, who were the two belligerents kind of responsible for starting this particular war, they overthrew the Transitional Military Council because they were like, OK, we have been working with the civilians, but at this point, the idea was that they would hand over power to the civilians. They didn't want to do that. And at the point that they did this coup, the international community, rather than saying this is unacceptable, the international community said, well, do you know what? We know how to deal with military generals. Why don't we just normalize this situation? It's fine that Hemeti is essentially a genocide and, and was part of the you know genocide in Darfur, but he is reformed and he's got a PR company now that's helping him rebuild his image. You know, And he's trying to position himself as a leader and a politician. So why don't we have the meetings with him? And it's fine if he travels around the world having other meetings with leaders. And and we will accept what they say is at face value. When everybody involved at the Sudanese, you know, all the, the diplomats that had an idea of what was actually going on, all Sudanese people, even your average Sudanese person on the street was like, why are you dealing with these generals? The international community does have some responsibility because they accepted the words of the belligerents at face value when everybody who had actual skin in the game was saying don't do it because they wanted an expedient political solution. And I can get it, but if you do that, 
that, then nothing's going to change. If you operate in the same way that you always have, trying to sort of minimize or trying to sort of, you know, manage the situation, then you're going to get to the same outcome, which is a war between these two generals. Like a colleague who is involved in sort of electoral policy was in Sudan just a few weeks before the war broke out in April. And she was like, Yasmin, Everyone on the ground was like, something's going to happen. But then when you spoke to the Volker Perts and other people who were kind of at the UN level, they talked about how shocked they were. How can there be such a massive disconnect between, you know, the diplomatic level who are in negotiations and at the table in Jeddah and so on and Sudanese people who have a sense of what's going on? I think this is about, you know, Western powers and so on and also a, a lack of nuance or experience in some sense, not listening to people saying things need to be done differently, not thinking about genuine prevention, I think leads us into a situation. It is much easier to start a war than it is to end one. And that's the situation we're now in. Well, as we have foreshadowed, one conflict which did not struggle for international headlines was the one which reignited between Israel and Hamas in October. At the best of times, the wider Israel-Palestine dispute consumes vastly more global attention than any other. And on October 7th, the worst of times descended. Hamas broke through the confines of the Gaza Strip and slaughtered more than 1,200 people. Israel's response has run up a death toll comfortably into five figures. Yossi, first of all, I'm not sure ever how much help parallel universes, forks in roads not taken, hypotheticals are to us, but let's try one anyway. How different does it look now if, and I understand that there is no imaginable universe in which Benjamin Netanyahu of all people is ever going to do this, but how different are things now if after October 7th, Israel takes whatever action is necessary to seal its borders and secure itself? Fine, nobody's going to have a problem with that and just doesn't strike a blow instantly, just decides to let the world have a bit of a think about what has just happened here. The phrase I keep hearing in the last two months, we'll never be back in the 6th of October. That's that. It's different world, never be back. I think in reality, yes, things change dramatically. First, the atrocity by Hamas, unparalleled in the relations with the Palestinians. And then what we see since then, two months of massive bombardment, using excessive force in Gaza, that who knows how many lives have been lost already in Gaza, mainly by civilians. The question is, again, going to the root causes of it. It was neglected. And how many times we discussed it in this studio, that at the end of the day, if you don't go to the root causes of self-determination for everyone, addressing the Palestinian refugee issue, that everyone will have equal right, equal security between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Jerusalem, as the capital of both, will be in this situation. It's not to justify anything that Hamas did. Hmm. It's not to justify any violence. But at the end of the day, so many times I heard when we offer to facilitate Again, as an institution, we, we offer to facilitate because of the impasse between the Israel Palestinians. And we said that it's unsustainable. The status quo is an illusion. It's going to implode. People said, no, no, you don't know what you're talking about. It's not going to happen. One shouldn't be surprised that people try to break out of Gaza and not to live under siege and blockade. The way they did it probably is more costly than what they ever could have gained. But the fact that it's unresolved and the international community gave up on it is, for me, 
a criminal neglect by the Israelis and the Palestinians, but also by the international community. Latika, it's fair to say, I think, that a complacency had descended as far as Israel was concerned about the Palestinian issue. There was that picturesque quote from Naftali Bennett, where he he likened it as basically, well, as he put it, it's like shrapnel in the buttocks, you know, a literal pain in the whatever, but you can learn to live with it. (laughs) This, of course, is obviously not to even begin to attempt to justify anything Hamas did on October 7th, because there is no justification of that. But if we approach that action on its own merits. Is it clear to you, or indeed anyone, what Hamas actually thought it was doing? What its idea of what happens next was going to be? Because the thing that I still fail to understand is that they know by now that Israel will, rightly or wrongly, but because it's how Israel always responds, Israel will respond with massive, disproportionate retaliatory force. What is happening in Gaza now is surely exactly what Hamas imagined was going to happen. And it's not entirely unhelpful to Hamas. I mean, we have seen march after march after march take place in Western capitals right around the world, including here in London, where people are condemning Israel for its response to this attack. So it's not entirely unhelpful. I must say, and I'm very aware, and I'll put this on the record, it's very clear that not everyone who marches in support of Free Palestine is marching in support of Hamas. But I must say one of the biggest surprises to me this year has been just how under the surface a lot of anti-Semitism has been in our societies, in our own societies. Really not that far under. Yes, and growing up in Australia, I did not see this. So it has been a real culture shock to see this firsthand. But I think going broader into Yossi's point here is that I think one of the biggest mistakes or the biggest tragedies was the Trump administration's dealing of Netanyahu because Netanyahu built settlement after settlement in the West Bank. No one did anything to stop him, effectively green-lighted him to go further and further. And what you then have is the Palestinians feeling like no one is hearing their very legitimate complaints. No one will hear their plea for a viable solution to the conflict and the normalisation of Israel's relationships with its Arab neighbours. So that's an alarming set of circumstances if you are Palestinian to be in with no side of freedom and no side of opportunity and hope. And they are things that Israel and the international community should absolutely be offering Palestinians. So I think Yossi is right. The neglect of this conflict has come back to bite the international community in a terrible, terrible, dreadful way. Yasmin, it has been suggested in some quarters that part of Hamas's motivation was attempting to spike that accelerating normalisation between Israel and its Arab neighbours that Latika mentioned. It was widely assumed that the next domino to fall would be Saudi Arabia, that there would be an exchange of ambassadors between Jerusalem and Riyadh, which would be an extraordinary diplomatic development. I have to say, I'm not convinced with that. I do think that credits Hamas with possibly more strategic subtlety than they can actually muster. But does it strike you as significant, not so much the response from Arab people around the world who have demonstrated quite widely to the extent that they're permitted to in support of the Palestinians, but the response of Arab governments has been, it strikes me, significantly muted. There has been a lot of phoned-in pro forma, uh, we're not terribly happy about this, but whatever kind of thing. But Nobody is really inveighing against Israel in a way that you might have expected Arab governments to do maybe 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, I think what's interesting, I see this also in context with Saudi's more recent moves to position itself differently in the West. You know, Mm. I think MBS, Mohammed bin Salman's kind of 
desire to sort of be opening up. And even here in London, you see adverts about come visit Saudi when it was almost impossible for people to get visas to visit Saudi not that long ago. So I, I see it as part of a move that maybe the bloc is making to perhaps position itself as more of a regional power that isn't always going to make the political decisions that it may have always been expected to. I don't know how it's going to pan out, but even the normalization that Latika was talking about, I think, is part of this. I mean, America isn't the power that it used to be, but it's certainly, you know, turning towards the West with the World Cup in Qatar, for example. Again, you're seeing that there is trying to be if not a middle ground between the West and the quote-unquote East or whatever you might want to call it, but some sort of repositioning. So it's not always just we're going to put all our eggs in one basket and we're not going to sort of use all of our political capital on an issue that we don't necessarily know what we want the outcome to be. I do think this is interesting. I'm not sure at the end of this particular conflict what that end looks like and I'm not sure what these Arab countries necessarily want really. And Yossi, I'm not sure if you have more kind of insight on this, but I'm, but I'm curious. I don't think it's fully clear. As any disaster or crisis, it's great opportunities. And I think it depends how we're going to look at it. There is, for instance, an opportunity for regional powers to be involved in the reconstruction of Gaza, in reunited of governing the Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza. The Fatah will see what the future holds for Gaza. But we need to go, again, back to basic. And I think, actually, the Saudis got it completely right in 2002 with the peace initiative, with the Saudi peace initiative translated to the Beirut Declaration, normalization for peace with between the Israel-Palestinians, as long as the Palestinians accept a peace agreement, the rest of the Arab world would normalize a relation. And then the Abraham Accord reverses it. Let's start with normalization, then see what happens. Mm. Again, the sense of the Palestinians, that they are completely abandoned, and I can't blame them for that. Now, the way that Hamas responded to that is exactly the opposite of, you know, advancing the cause of, of Palestinians. But at the same time, if Israel is going to learn anything from that, as you go back to what you said, Andre, there are no fences or walls or technology that are going to stop people that want freedom. And the only way to do that is actually grant them freedom and reduce the motivation to challenge you. Mm -hmm. And that's the way forward. Well, on a semi-related note, we might have hoped this time last year that this time this year we would be talking in more upbeat terms about Ukraine or in a best-case scenario, not talking about Ukraine at all. A much-vaunted counter-offensive by Ukraine's military during the summer did not make the desired territorial gains nor prompt any climactic unravelling of Russian morale. Latika, I've spoken to a lot of Ukrainians at various security conferences and similar wingdings this year. The refrain that I do keep hearing from them, and this is Ukrainians from across Ukraine's political spectrum, is that they're being given enough to survive but not enough to win. Does that strike you as a fair analysis? Yes, but I think a bigger part of this story is our defence industry capability. And I think we're now in a position where Putin has nine or so, 11 months till the next US election, mm -hmm. I, I forget the date, yes. He has no incentive to do anything but wait out the West until we see the result of that election. We're already seeing bipartisanship breakdown in terms of funding military aid for Ukraine, so he's also winning on that front. Secondly, 
Russian capability to keep producing wartime materials that it needs to wage this war is probably better than the West at the moment. And so there is a strong sense that Putin can simply wait and outproduce the West, which is what is happening. And, and he can certainly continue just to throw great masses of humanity at a conflict, which is the way that Russia has historically fought. Exactly. And so none of these scenarios bode well for Ukraine. And I think the first year of the war, which brought a lot of the West together, has largely been frayed, I would say, partly because of the Middle East conflict. That war has torn societies apart that were previously united around the kind of moral clarity of what they saw in the Ukraine war, not so when you come to the Middle East. And secondly, I just think until the US election outcome is resolved, we can't hope to see any sort of clarity on Ukraine. And for Ukrainians, some that I was talking to at the NATO meeting last week in Brussels were saying, you know, we don't expect this war to end in our lifetime. We expect to be fighting this war for the rest of our lives. And I'm not quite sure a lot of Western societies have caught up with that mode of thinking. And to add to that, Andrew, you then also have some very troubling but understanding signs at this point in time of political breakdown in the consensus within Ukraine itself. So there's only trouble ahead for Ukraine. Yossi, it's also said by a lot of Ukrainians I have spoken to that the West, for all that the West has supplied Ukraine generously with weapons and arms, diplomatic and political cover, etc., there is a fear at large in the West on a number of fronts about what it would actually mean if Ukraine one, first of all, there is the difficulties, potentially enormous difficulties of managing a defeated and humiliated Russia, which would not necessarily be easy. And I've also heard it muttered that Western European countries are not terribly enthralled by the idea of this massive power block comprising mostly Poland and Ukraine at the heart of the EU and possibly NATO, that all of a sudden this is a whole new axis in the East which is going to demand and deserve a very big seat at the table. Do you think that is actually fair, that there is a certain amount of, well to invoke the name of the late statesman in inverted commas, Kissingerish pragmatism descending here, that actually the current situation, it might actually be in the interests of a lot of Western countries. You know, when the enthusiasm of the beginning, you know, it is kind of very clear who is the villain and who are the heroes here, who we should support. It was very clear back in 24th of February 2022. And then you think, what are the consequences of that? What do you do if Russia collapses? It's still a nuclear power. What happens if Russia is really back to the wall? Is it going to use nuclear, even tactical nuclear weapons? Then the other thing we know, when it comes to sophisticated weapons, it takes time until they're absorbed within the Ukrainian military. So sometimes there is a delay in this too. And what happened in wars like this? They eventually got to an impasse, to a stalemate. Because both sides learn to know each other well enough where to stop it. Then you need to move into the diplomatic world, but there is no appetite for that. And when the future of the leader depends on what happens in the battlefield, they're not going to make concessions. And the fear in the West, in ideal world, you think, oh, if Putin goes, it all resolved. But this is not a done deal. Maybe someone worse than Putin mm -hmm. will replace him, and then we are back to where we were almost two years ago. So in this sense, there is a lot of reassessment. And then you look at the cost of the war in Ukraine, and we are in the West with like instant solution. You know, whatever happens, it should be instant. We don't patient. The difference between democracies and dictatorship, dictatorships always have time. <laughs> 
and the time <laughs> plays in their advantage. Well, on that cheery thought, we will draw our deliberations to a close because the clock is against us. I did want to finish the show by asking each of you in turn if you could come up for 2023 with one hero and one villain each. I do rather suspect, given the tone of what we have been discussing, that naming villains is going to be easier than heroes. But Latika, I will start with you. Let's have a good guy and a bad guy. OK, I've gone a little abstract with mine. It's, Go on. It's one in the same. So after the pandemic, we saw lots of governments and jurisdictions say we really need to diversify and we need to de-risk, to use a European word. So I think that's a very heroic and noble aim and goal to set. What I think is villainous is the absolute failure to stand up to that and actually apply that in practice. And here I would like to talk about Australia and the European Union. We have been trying to spend five years negotiating a trade deal and it's fallen over at the last hurdle. It surrounds literally around 10,000 tonnes of beef meat and this is all because the Irish and the French are too scared to go to their own voters and say, look, there's a lot more at stake than a few thousand tonnes of beef And we should sign these trade agreements because they're going to power critical minerals release into Europe and help us transition to net zero in a speedier and more reliable way. And the European Union and uh, Mercosur have also just failed to strike agreements. So I think unless politicians really want to do the hard work to make de-risking and diversifying practical policies, it's a shameful hollow mirage that they are selling their voters. Latika, thank you. And we will, when we put this episode together, get Christy to put a symbol crash and a rim shot in behind the stakes are high. Uh, Yasmin? This, I mean, it really was a tough question. My, my <laughs> list of villains is like <laughs> as long as my arm. Um, you know what's interesting? I have such a suite of villains to choose from, but my villain this year is quite a selfish one. And it is Elon Musk because he's destroyed Twitter. And I really liked Twitter. <laughs> so it's, it's purely a selfish one from my perspective. And in terms of heroes, I think, to be honest, the people that came to mind were the young women journalists who have been reporting out of Gaza, actually. There's a couple of them that have been mostly reporting through social media. And I think the fact that they're young women sort of who are very vulnerable and open and also trying to do the best that they can to report what's happening on the ground. They've certainly been, I think, quite heroic in doing so. Yossi. So I agree with you about the villain. It's in my list too. And I thought by ending by saying we should put an X on Twitter. Oh, no. (laughs) So we completely agree. Similarly, my hero is Vivian Silver. She was killed by Hamas, 74-year-old Canadian-Israeli who worked endlessly for peace and helped Palestinians and to get medical help in the years of the blockade. And her life was there on the border, living in Kibbutz Be'eri, and it came to an early end on 7th of October, but she was one of the founders of Women Wage Peace, and until her, you know... Last day, fought for peace, so she's definitely my hero. Yossi Meckelberg, Latika Burke and Yasmin Abdul-Majid, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. 
To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.